In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Episode 16 of the Pod in Order podcast. We're back in action. I'm your host, Camille Labchuk, joined today by my co-host, Peter Sankoff. Hello, Camille. Good to be back. Good to be back with you too, Peter. How's it going? It's going okay. I, I noticed uh, we missed a podcast. Yeah, we did. You know, I think when we started this, we never promised we were going to be perfect and do every single episode. And Peter, the truth is, I just couldn't bear it to do one without you. I, I, I think, Camille... I, I know we, we, we suggested we, we keep this quiet, but I think it's time to be upfront with our listeners, Camille. I think honesty is the best policy here. And, and the truth is, Camille went through a very difficult bout of croissant withdrawal symptom. And she was in really bad shape when we found her. She just, you know, was desperately in need. We had to fly in croissants from Paris just to get Camille back up and running again. So because of that, she was unable to do the podcast. We, we, we wish you well in your recovery, Camille. I understand you're in, you're in some sort of croissant rehab. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. Thank you, Peter, for being so thoughtful to bring those croissants in because it really did save my life. And, you know, if you're in Ottawa Bakery and you're out there and you're listening, there is a serious need for good croissants here. So think about making them. We're working on it, Camille. We're working on it. We're always thinking about you. But uh, it is really good to be back. I think we're back on regular programming now. We've got a very excited, I'm, I'm almost depressed to say fall lineup, Camille, because I think that means the end of summertime. But we got an exciting fall lineup. There is lots and lots going on, isn't there? Yeah, there's so much. We're going to have a couple guest hosts, some really special episodes for you guys. I was going to say, as a sneak peek, Camille, I don't want to, I, I think we might be in person at some point. I think we're going to be in each other's presence through this fall. That's all I'm going to say. I think it's going to happen. And it looks like we've got a couple of visits lined up this fall, which should be really fun. Yeah, it's going to be great. So uh, how is your end of summer going? I've seen all kinds of crazy things going on for you. What you been up to? August has been really busy and also really fun. So last weekend, I spoke at the Veg Summit in Montreal. This was the first annual event. And it was less of a veg fest and more of a day where speakers come together and people can listen to really interesting conversations about veganism, animal rights, health implications of, of a plant-based diet. Really cool stuff. So I was on a panel about uh, animal rights as the social movement of the 21st century with some other cool activists. But Peter, of course, the highlight of the Veg Summit was Dr. Michael Greger, everyone's favorite medical doctor with a specialization in nutrition, who just has like a kind of a cult following. So if you're out there and you're listening and you want to learn more about Dr. Greger, he's written a great book called How Not to Die, which tells you how to be a healthy, happy person and avoid different diseases. He's got this amazing website, nutritionfacts.org, which has short videos and articles on all kinds of nutrition topics. So really cool. But that's uh, that's not all. I know there's it's 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 August seems to be veg August September seems to be veg fest season. So the veg summit wasn't technically veg fest. Uh, I know you're busy with veg festing all over Ontario and other places. 
Yeah, well, there's so much going on. Um, September is just actually ridiculous for me. I looked at my schedule and kind of thought, why did I do this to myself? But I've got a veg fest pretty much every weekend in September. We've got the Toronto Veg Fest the weekend after Labor Day. I'm speaking at that. Um, Halifax Veg Fest on September 23rd. I'll be speaking there. I've got Montreal and London coming up. Um, we'll also be in Guelph. I won't be there, but Animal Justice will be. And colleague Anna Pippis will be speaking in Winnipeg. And Peter, you and I have a conference in Chicago that we're going to, which is the Animal Law Conference in the U.S. More, and more you're at a Veg Fest too, right? I am. I'm very excited. The Edmonton Veg Fest is sort of taking a step up this year. In the past, the Edmonton Veg Fest has sort of been a group of individual vendors, uh, literally in a parking lot. Uh, and and it's moved up and their new website looks good and they've got a bunch of speakers and they've got uh, quite a few vendors from across the province. So very exciting. Uh, I'm looking forward to the Edmonton Veg Fest in uh, mid-September. And are you going to talk about animal law? I will indeed be talking about animal law. I'll be introducing, you know, sort of introductory talk on the benefits and the importance of animal law as a discipline and sort of advancing things for animals. Well, that's exciting. So any listeners out there who want to join, I think the date is September 30th. Yes, please tell me you listen to Paw and Order, please. I, 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 I honestly don't believe anybody listens to Paw and Order. So if you're listening, you got to come up to me and say you listen to Paw and Order. Very important. And if you do that, Peter is going to donate $100 per person to animal justice, well, right? Yeah, somewhere along those lines. I don't know if it's going to be 100 per person, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk donations. It's definitely, we, we need a lot of support. We're going to have, we're supposed to be having a booth there as well. Uh, so you can look for the animal justice booth, I believe. Is that coming around, Camille? Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely have a booth. So you guys can stop by and sign some petitions and get some more info about animal law. Fantastic. What else has been going on, Camille? Well, I done a couple interesting radio things lately. I was on The Current the other week, which is, for, for those of you who don't listen, it's CBC Radio's flagship morning public affairs program. And there was a, a really great discussion that I was part of about this case that we've talked about before, where our friends at the Animal Legal Defense Fund in the U.S. filed a suit on behalf of a horse named Justice who was illegally neglected. His owner already pled guilty to neglect, and now they're suing on behalf of Justice saying that he's entitled to damages, essentially. So they're suing in his own name and seeking standing for justice, which is a really important uh, case and advances animals' rights for sure. It gets this animal at least potentially in the door of the courtroom, which is cool. So there was a great discussion about that. And uh, coming up on September 5th, if you're listening to this before then, you can catch me on Maritime Noon, which is the lunchtime call-in program in the Maritimes about uh, animal rights. We're going to do a whole discussion about animal rights. I'm going to take phone calls. We're going to have a really good chat about it, I hope. Every time I do one of these call-ins, Peter, the response is just really awesome. Mm. Uh, people call in with great comments and questions, and it really makes me think that people are more and more keen to hear about these issues and think about them. We need to do a call-in show one day, Camille. Desperate. I remember our, our second episode of the year was sort of a live call-in show in my class, and I'm eager to uh, duplicate that experience sometime in the future. Yeah, we should. We should. Yeah, absolutely. So, Peter, how was uh -huh. your vacation? 
Vacation was good. It was a little short. I was uh, in British Columbia, so it was a little smoky, Camille, I'll be honest. It was on the, the smokier side. But uh, luckily, I came back home to Edmonton where it was even smokier. So it's been a smoky oh. um, August, a little bit depressing with all the smoke. Uh, but otherwise, vacation was excellent. We got to do some swimming. We got to relax. It was really, really nice. But I have uh, since come back to, to work, Camille. And I've got to tell you... Um, I have like minor exciting news. Unfortunately, I can't share many details, but the exciting news are I have an animal law case. I recently uh, took a client um, on an animal law case. I just, I'm not allowed to say too much about the case, unfortunately. I can just tell you it's a, a veterinary negligence case, uh, which uh, I've uh, agreed to represent a client on. I don't do a lot of civil uh, law type stuff, but I wanted to get involved with this one because I think it's important. Um, we haven't talked about this in depth, but uh, I don't think veterinary negligence is at the leading edge of animal law or the most important thing that I do, but I do think it's important because the, uh, the justice system values animals so poorly that when you lose your pet, you'd be shocked at how much you're entitled, um, even when there is clear negligence on behalf of the veterinarian. Yeah, that's a really interesting question in animal law is why it is that damages for the loss of a pet by someone's negligence or mistreatment are capped at such a low amount, which is usually considered to be like the replacement cost of the animal, which obviously you can go and buy animals, unfortunately, in this country for quite a low amount. So that's a huge issue. Yeah, it is a huge issue. And there has been some, like the courts have been willing to bump that up a little bit. There have been enough cases now where they've been able to at least obtain some small degree for the emotional distress that goes with the loss of the animal. But but honestly, the, there are other models that look about how to value animals differently. And of course, the, pro the problem, this really isn't an animal problem. It's the way in which the legal system um, views damages. And the way the problem affects animals is that you then slot animals into the property designation. And that requires their replacement to be capped at market value. So as a result, uh, it's sort of indirectly the animals are, are put in a position where you just cannot treat them in the way they need to be treated. And the way this is being dealt with in a lot of jurisdictions, in fact, um, if I re recall correctly, Camille, I think one of our early podcasts, like one of the first podcasts we talked about a jurisdiction that's trying to do otherwise. Actually, that might have been with respect to divorce. But there have been some U.S. states that have tried to um, essentially by statute say that animals can be recovered uh, for value where there's damage up to $25,000 or $30,000, well above their market value. And that just makes so much more sense when you think about what an animal is worth to their family who cares for them. It's not the animal's not worth a few hundred dollars that it would cost to buy a new one. The animal's a unique individual. So I, I'm I would be surprised if the law in this area didn't change drastically in the coming decades as we increasingly acknowledge their value to us and to society. And of course, Camille, you know, just to tie this up, like to go back to to uh, stuff we talked about before in this area, one of the reasons it doesn't change is because the impediments to getting it changed are so significant. It's very difficult for me, for example, to tell a client, well, we should go to court over this, right? And we should try and litigate this in a significant way because it's important to the wider situation for animals, right? It's not just about me telling my client, well, I, I think you're going to recover X. Um, I think you should do this for all animals. But unfortunately, if they lose, if I can't convince the judge of that case, that there's the costs hammer that's coming down on them. And it's going to be a very expensive lawsuit. So it's just, it's really difficult when the law is so uh, negative on this and this issue to, to use the court system as a way of leveraging the matter forward, even though you could argue that the court system is the perfect place for this type of, of matter.
Yeah, yeah, totally. This is really consistent with the, the common law and the way that the status of animals or other entities evolves over time. Yeah, I guess another topic, yet another topic on our future topic list. We'll, we'll make note of that. So, Peter, this isn't your only case coming up. I understand you're going back to the country's top court again. Well, that's what's keeping me busy. I, I've spoken about this before. So the next month or so is going to be hunker down and prep for a big case at the Supreme Court. The good news about that, um, it's not an animal law case, as I've mentioned before, but I'm excited to be going back to the Supreme Court. And I get to come to Ottawa, Camille, and see you. I think I'm I'm going to be crashing your Thanksgiving Day party where I'm expecting lots of... <laughs> are, are you flying in croissants from Paris, Camille? That's all I want. No, I'm going to bake them myself. Even oh, better. my God, even better. Even better. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it already. We'll have to do a special pawn order episode at the Thanksgiving table. Yeah, we'll we'll make it happen. <laughs> very exciting. Okay, well, it's been a very busy, we've been away for a while, so it's very busy in the news. Um, let's dig right into some of these topics. There's been a lot going on and some really important issues for animals. And I think a good one to start with, um, we talked about an ALDF case involving justice, a horse, but we've got ALDF has been very busy with another case um, that I think is quite interesting and has some ramifications for Canada. Camille, you want to fill us in on the basics of this one? Yes, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, the ACLU, which is the American Civil, Li Civil Liberties Union, and also the Good Food Institute, which promotes plant-based alternatives and clean meat, which is cultured or lab meat, they have filed a lawsuit in the state of Missouri against a law Missouri recently passed at the behest of the meat industry, surprise, surprise, that says that the definition of meat is uh, flesh that comes from slaughtered animals. So you might think, well, that is meat, right? Well, not exactly. What we're seeing, of course, is this revolution in technology where very likely clean meat, so meat produced outside of animal slaughter in a laboratory or a brewery type situation, real flesh, but grown without the animal, that's about to hit the markets in the coming years. And, and lots of companies are, are gearing up to do that. Even traditional meat companies are investing in this new area. And it really is the wave of the future. So obviously the meat industry is scared of this and they're trying to get laws passed to uh, hinder these products. Yeah, it's really, this is uh, this has been an ongoing one we've talked about on a couple of occasions. I've just, it just boggles my mind that consumer, I mean, this is a particular law. This is actually where they've put in the law that says meat can only come in from slaughtered animals. So you have a chance to attack that law directly. But it never ceases to amaze me how much the agricultural industry seem to be able to control the consumer protection boards in this way and obtain essentially in this day and age um, complete oversight of words that are used in common parlance for other purposes. And I understand to a certain extent this is the way it's been done historically. I remember reading about champagne cases. Does that ring a bell, Camille, in, uh, mm -hmm. way back in law school? Uh, about what is champagne, even though everybody calls sparkling wine champagne, even though technically champagne comes from a particular region of France. Well, in, in, in Canada, what we see all the time is this ongoing debate over milks and cheeses and what can be labeled and how you can call your things. And it's like, to me, it's just absolutely ridiculous ridiculous that this is put in place supposedly for consumer protection. It's not about trademarking. It's about consumer protection and the basic idea that, you know, we're going to be misled if, if we have soy milk, even though everybody and their mother, brother, friend, and everything calls it soy milk in every place you go. But if you look at it carefully, it's not soy milk, is it, Camille? 
No, no, it's not at all, because the definition of milk in Canadian law, for instance, is uh, the mammary secretions of a mammal, it's which a, is it's disgusting. A, it's a soy, what is it, a soy beverage? Is that what they call it? I believe it's a soy beverage. Yeah, if you look at your milk carton, your soy milk carton or your almond milk carton in the fridge, you might Camille, assume it careful. has milk on it. You said soy milk, Camille. Watch it. I, I feel a lawsuit coming. Be careful. Oh, the industry's going to get me. Be careful, Camille. We... Let me be clear, everybody. References to soy milk here are soy beverage. In fact, I was just in Starbucks the other day, and I said, please, do you have any soy beverage with that? And I think the person behind the counter looked at me like I was insane. Like, what is that? She said, we call she it said soy what's milk. the soy beverage? I said, well, I need some soy beverage because I'm going to have some uh, – I'm going to have a, a quick snack. And my snack right now is um, – I don't, what do you call, what do you call what do you call veggie meats? Can you call it a veggie burger? I I don't think burger is a trademark term, is it? I think I think we can get perhaps away with a, veggie burger. Perhaps a vegetable protein patty is what yes. we should be calling it to keep ourselves yes. safe. <laughs> and of course, tofurkey. I could call it tofurkey, but what it really is is I, I don't know what it really is. I just want to call it fake turkey or fake meat, but I'm not allowed to do that. So I, I just, it's its all very ridiculous. And of course, vegan cheese is not vegan cheese. That would be too ridiculous. So we're going to call it um, vegan simulated um, um, fromage-like process. <laughs> you can't even get or, to it without using cheese. Or my favorite is cheese, but spelled with a Z instead of an S, yes. as if that's like somehow not misleading to people because it's not really cheese. It's just so ridiculous and so outrageous, Peter. They're like they're essentially the thought and the language police that the meat and dairy industries are trying to do this, and it's, it's really offensive. Even Missouri's state consumer protection agency they admit there's no evidence that consumers are misled by any of this stuff. Yet the uh, industry seems to have legislators in their pockets. So. Good on these groups. Yeah, very excited about it. I hope it goes to trial, and I really hope that we get some sort of judgment. I, I think that any constitutional judgment in the U.S. will be looked at with care here, but I, I think certainly if they test the claims on consumer protection, that'll be of use uh, anywhere and very interesting to us. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, Peter, keeping with our theme of industries using their unlimited resources in nefarious ways. We've got another story here about the University of British Columbia accepting a lot of money from Big Dairy for so-called scientific research. So hats off to our colleague Anna Pippis for digging this stuff up, but she filed some access to information requests with the university. And she got back a list of uh, funding grants, essentially, with a whole bunch of them, almost $2 million from the dairy industry in three years. Uh, going towards scientific research at the university. And this is a, really a well-documented problem. It's, it's nothing novel at this point, this idea that funding bias in research can influence the outcome and the results. And there's already studies underway at UBC that seem to be suggesting that they're trying to find benefits of like milk fat on gut flora and things like that. So I find that troubling. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's not quite the same thing, but it was. It's interesting. Some of the research that I'm doing right now is going to get into discussion about uh, NFAC and um, NFAC 
um, codes. And, and it's really interesting. I started doing some digging for this article into, you know, the veterinary industry. And, uh, you know, I don't want to go too far down the road into our, our main topic, but, but like, for example, the, the NFAC group that we're going to talk about that, like, you know, arguably sets the standards for what you're allowed to do in agriculture takes representatives from the veterinary industry and from the scientific community. Right. So like it's not just farmers making these decisions. We've got representatives from the community. But if you dig deeper, the representatives they get from the community, well, the vet they get is the vet for the farmers. Like it's the, literally it's not even it's not even rotated. It's just the actual vet who works with the largest farmers in the country. And when you go to the scientific community, which brings it back to the UBC story, it's the the a professor, and I'm not knocking the professor. I'm just suggesting that the professor at Guelph University, who's doing animal welfare science, is the egg farmer's chair. You know what I mean? Who's doing the layer hen coat? She's literally yeah. the egg farmer's chair. Like I don't see the egg farmers of Canada giving me money for my research or anybody else for their research that's sort of critically looking at animal standards. And again, I'm not trying to impugn uh, the professor in this case. I don't know anything about her work one way or another. And I'm, I'm going to assume that she's very interested in making real animal welfare improvements for animals. But, but it is kind of sort of disturbing that the, the very person tasked with this literally is sponsored in the chair, sponsored by the egg farmers of Canada. Absolutely. We all need to be very concerned and essentially look at where's the money? Who is paying them? Are these people beholden to another funder who's who's giving them a lot of money to do certain work? It's always, always very important to follow the money. Yeah, I did some work yesterday, Camille, for again, for this article. I was reading a really interesting paper by, I'm going to do a shout out to uh, Jason McLean of Lakehead University Law School. And he did some, he's done some really wonderful work on regulatory capture. And regulatory capture is essentially the idea, as he puts it, there are lots of variations of regulatory capture, but the one he was talking about is where industry essentially buys the regulators in a way. They essentially, either through political pressure or lobbying or whatever, they essentially avoid regulation or change the nature of regulation through purchase. And I don't want to say that's exactly what's going on in the agricultural industry. We'll talk about that in our main our main discussion. But it was really interesting when you read, I have to show you this article, he literally listed in the environmental area the six biggest problems with environmental law. And I was reading them and it was like, check, that, that, that applies to animal law, check, so does that one, check, so does that one. And it was just like, it was really interesting that at the end of the day, he said, if you want to know what these problems arise from, just follow the money. That's essentially where they come from. Yeah, yeah. Following the money is a really good rule of thumb when you're looking at animal industries and who might be biased in what direction. And Peter, speaking of follow the money, let's talk about another news item which uh, shows again the dairy fingers long tent or the dairy industry's long tentacles and to what extent they reach. So Dairy Farmers of Canada, and I should say this isn't actually a news story so much as, as it is a series of tweets from a delegate at the Conservative Party's national convention last weekend in Halifax. So this delegate posted some screenshots or some photos rather of a binder that the dairy farmers of Canada was distributing or somehow used at the convention. And what they were doing is lobbying for uh, the defeat or perhaps adoption of a few resolutions, policy resolutions, Peter, that were favorable to them and to the industry. They were especially trying to kill a supply management motion that they didn't like. So dairy farmers want to keep supply management because it makes them more money and lots of libertarians want to kill it. So there's this kind of constant interplay in the Conservative Party, especially. 
But they had this entire briefing binder on the motions that they wanted passed. They had key messages for delegates to use in the event of defeat or passing or them being stalled. They had all these social media photo opportunities that they were suggesting. Um, They also indicated that they'd already even had conversations potentially with conservative leader Andrew Scheer's office about killing certain motions as well and and what their strategies would be if certain ones passed the convention floor and needed to get killed somewhere else along the way. So, Peter, to me, this is just another reminder, and I'm going to get back on my my hobby horse here. Oh, no, I hear the hooves. Here's the hooves. The industry has a lot of money, and they can do a very effective job of lobbying, and animal activists, we need to catch up. So stay tuned for more information about this in the fall, and perhaps some workshops we're going to host that you can come to and learn how to do this. Let's just say we got a long way to go to, to catch up. How about we get on the field? Like, I mean, the, the, I, 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 I say this, to be perfectly honest, with incredible admiration. Like, they're really good at it. Like, I, I, I honestly, I once ran into the, I'm trying to remember, what's the Ontario one, Camille? Um, farm and Food Care. Oh, my God. Is that yeah. the one? Oh, my God. Those yeah, guys. Yeah, that's the one. They're like my heroes. I mean, it's totally despicable, but they're my heroes. Like, really, they're really good. They are outstanding. They've got the right people in place, and they are doing a wonderful job of essentially promoting their product. And if that means, shall we say, shading? Um, do you want to go with shading the facts, Camille? Then that's what they'll do. They will portray the facts uh, that are useful to them in the most positive light. And they do that unbelievably well. They're very good at lobbying. Perhaps, Peter, we can call it presenting alternative facts. Alternative facts, yes. Alternative truths, yes. Camille. Humane awesome. watching is another great word. Yes, that is another word. Wonderful. Okay, well, uh, um, off the hobby horse, we're going to move on to some legal, uh, two legal developments that have taken place that uh, we want to touch base on. Um, we have heard on this uh, uh, podcast before, uh, we talked, I believe it was our last podcast, Camille, about Malcolm, I hope I don't butcher his name, is it Malcolm Klimowitz? Is that correct? I think that's pretty close. Malcolm Klinowitz is facing a criminal trial. We talked about it uh, before for breaking and entering after filming uh, a mink farm, I believe. Uh, and he is going to be charged with a second offense later this week. That sounds very interesting. What uh, Do you know anything about the nature of the charge? No, I don't have details on it at this point. I expect we'll hear more once the charge has been laid. But apparently Malcolm has been asked to turn himself into a police station and more charges are coming in relation to another farm that he was at. So it's a different farm. Uh, the first one was in the Oshawa region, and the second one is is somewhere else in southwestern Ontario. So we'll stay tuned and bring you the latest news on that. Malcolm, of course, is going to face a criminal trial for breaking under on the first set of charges, or the first mm-hmm. charge, rather. And um, we'll be watching this very closely. It could, of course, be a great opportunity to expose the absolute horrors that the mink industry subjects on animals and really talk and highlight uh, talk about and highlight the footage that Malcolm gathered on these farms which is just sickening and disturbing abuse yeah absolutely good stuff we'll be following that with interest and finally um, let's talk about uh, a little issue that I wanted to raise today Um, the ongoing really the ongoing debate over live sheep export in Australia. It has been a running topic of our first year because so many exciting things. And frankly, I'm just amazed how well the animal advocates groups in Australia have done in getting this 
issue continuing to keep it in the public consciousness. This is literally, I feel like they're running a clinic, Neil, on how to get politicians engaged. They brought various politicians on side to continue raising the issue in Parliament. And essentially, the latest piece of news, as by the way, um, I'm not sure how much everybody's following Australian politics, but Australian politics is going through yet another seismic um, event of changing prime ministers and a lot going on in Australia. But through it all, um, Emmanuel Exports, a name that is not familiar to most of us over here, but it's very familiar to me from my time over uh, in, in the uh, South Pacific region. Emmanuel Exports was one of the largest live sheep export in Australia, and they are responsible, in my opinion, for the deaths and suffering of thousands and thousands of sheep over the years. They were the ones who were most recently involved in a horrific sheep export that led to an expose that ultimately led to hopefully some major changes in the industry. Emmanuel Exports has had their license revoked. Finally, it was suspended and then revoked. Whether or not they can get it back in future, I don't know. But I do know that simply that is a, the, the most serious uh, sanction that's, that, that can obviously be handed down by the export authority. And I'm very pleased that it's taken place. It's a pretty big deal. And Peter, what it speaks to me uh, is to a broader issue, which is why it's really important that we make sure industries have to be licensed and that there are conditions on those licenses. And I'm just, you know, to throw out one example here in Canada, zoos in Ontario and a lot of other places don't have to be licensed. And no matter how egregious the abuse is, no matter how awful a facility might be, authorities have no way to shut it down. And we see why that's so important in the case of Emanuel Exports. They do actually now have a mechanism, and they've taken advantage of that mechanism to shut down this abusive company. Yeah, and it's very difficult, even when you have a licensed company, um, to get them shut down. And Emanuel Exports sort of shows that. They had violation after violation after violation over the years. We also saw that in, in, in Alberta in a, in a case with um, Gazoo, a zoo that does have to be licensed in, in Alberta. We do require licensing here. And uh, they were allowed to go back after violation after violation or violation. But eventually, the government said, enough's enough and eventually said, you, you're going to have your license revoked, and the zoo was essentially forced to shut down. Yeah, and, and the other thing that licenses let animal advocates like us do is go into court and challenge the issuance of those licenses in some cases, and that can be another way to potentially get a license revoked and uh, put pressure on the facility to close its doors. No question. That is a really great point because it is up to us to find any avenues we can. It's just sometimes hard to find any avenue. We're going to talk about, I mean, it really leads us well into the main topic for today because it talks about the difficulty of having things enforced and regulated on farms where there really is no legal way to get your way in. And as we're you know, going to talk about today, the difference between a licensing regime and NFAC codes, Camille, um, it's a pretty big gap, isn't it? <laughs> It's oceans apart, I would say. Oceans, perhaps galaxies, universes. All right, that's a wonderful uh, time for us to segue. Let us go. We're going to talk about our main topic today. It is the codes of practice. Okay, well, Peter, we've obliquely and explicitly referenced the codes of practice many, many times on the show, and we've explained to listeners a little bit about what they're about. And um, actually, I think the episode that Anna Pippis co-hosted with me, uh, we went into them in some detail as well. But this is going to be a much deeper dive. So, Peter, you're writing a paper right now that focuses really on the codes of practice. Do you want to give us, a, in a nutshell, what they are? 
Sure. And I can tell you that the paper I'm writing is called Canada's Experiment with Industry Self-Regulation in Agriculture. Uh, is it a radical innovation or a means of insulation? And uh, it, codes of practice, wow, what they are. <laughs> I, <laughs> Not an easy question <laughs> to answer. But what are in they? In a nutshell, come on, just condense it. <laughs> it's, it's pretty hard to do because if I was like standing in front of me and you could see me, I'd be using air quotes. I'd say they're kind of like law with air quotes um really honestly half my paper camille is devoted to what they are so i'll explain what they are what they actually are and then we'll get into the interpretation of what they are and oh Peter, maybe before you maybe before you get going we should yeah. tell people first of all that there is no federal laws or regulations pertaining to the on-farm treatment of animals there's no Correct. standards for space requirements veterinary care stimulation enrichment there's nothing like that Correct. and provincially more or less the same thing. There's some general regulations that might apply to farmed animals, but again, they don't set out what the standards really should be. Well, more importantly, it's even more than that, because I get into that in the paper, and it's funny that you say that, because that's the way I lead into it. Let's keep in mind, so there is no federal oversight of farms outside of transport and slaughter. That's it. There is literally no other federal oversight of anything that goes on a farm, and I mean anything, okay? Just about. Um, when you get to the provinces, the provinces set out a bunch of general duties of care and a bunch of general provisions about not keeping animals in distress. And technically, those apply to any animal. But in every jurisdiction, there is an exception for animals that are kept in accordance with general and or reasonable accepted practices. That is a, let's just say that's, that's another issue of, of concern, but it is generally accepted and sometimes reasonable practices. So what I mean by that is in some provinces, it says generally accepted and reasonable practices, and in others, it just says generally accepted practices. My view is when you dig right into it, it's actually generally accepted practices, but that's a discussion for a later time. Why is that so important? Well, this is the example I give in my, in my, in my uh, paper. Let's say you have a dog. And you decide that you want to keep your dog in a cage 24 hours a day. Okay, well, one of the duties of care in most jurisdictions is that you have to give your animal adequate space to move. So in theory, if you kept your dog in a cage all day for, let's say, no reason whatsoever, you would be causing your animal distress, and you would also be doing so in, in breach of the requirement that you give your animal enough space. There would be no exception for that because there is no generally accepted practice to keep dogs in cages 24 hours a day. So anybody who's been listening to the show long enough says, well, what about layer hens? Well, that's the answer. Even though you have to give your animal inadequate, uh, adequate shelter, you are allowed to give your animal inadequate shelter if it is in accord with a generally accepted agricultural practice. That's right. So, you know, that's essentially what there is under the law. The law says that you need to do certain things and fulfill certain duties, but for animals used by industries, they can essentially set the standard by just doing what they want and saying that it's generally accepted within the industry. And if you, if you leave that to the courts to decide, I should add, my paper gets into this too, that if you leave that to the courts to decide, shall we say that the court treatment of these issues has not been very favorable? 
Um, essentially, it's up to the Crown to prove all the elements, and it has not been favorable. Essentially, um, the courts have accepted evidence from farmers in many cases that their practices, even though they were substandard and caused the animals lots of pain, were generally within the boundaries of what some farmers did, and that was enough to get them an acquittal. So essentially, unless we are talking, Camille, about literally abuse, right? Like the Chilliwack dairy farms where you have them whipping cows. Well, nobody's going to say that's generally accepted. Um, unless we're talking about abuse, you're pretty much, you know, fair game. Yeah, it's sort of a carte blanche, sort of uh, overt physical abuse. So that's the general state of the law. That's the context within which we're going to talk about these codes of practice and what NFAC does and why um, that's important and why it interacts with the, the state of the law. So, uh, Peter, why don't we move on to NFAC? So let's, we've heard us talk, talk about, about this about before. Yeah. Let's talk about NFAC. We, we love NFAC. So NFAC stands for the National Farmed Animal Care Council. And it was set up uh, somewhat recently, but it had a predecessor back in, what was it, the 80s, Peter? Yeah, it started the, the, the early, there were some provincial councils that emerged in the 80s. Um, I like to, in my paper, I documented how NFAC came into being. And uh, I, I should say, by the way, that that was helped along by a really helpful paper supplied by NFAC that talks about how they were created. But essentially, they developed through the 80s and 90s. Um, and, and to make a long story short, NFAC came to be created around 2005. And they did that uh, um, through after lengthy consultation with with government, etc., about the best way to deal with emerging issues, which is an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, and so uh, a lot of people in the so-called humane movement were concerned that there were no laws protecting animals on farms, and they managed to get transport laws, they managed to get slaughter laws in, but the federal government and probably industry was just saying, no, we don't want any rules. We don't actually want any laws pertaining to the treatment of animals on farms. So there was an agreement to set up essentially this body and various predecessor bodies that created these voluntary, non-binding codes of practice that are supposed to represent the national understanding of how we are to treat animals used on farms. Yeah, it's actually a little bit more, I, I, don't, I don't mean to quibble with you, Camille, but my research shows it's a little bit more complex than that in terms of their creation. I want to say two things from the farming community's perspective. Um, it wasn't, there was, you are, you are absolutely correct that there were sentiments and there were pockets of the farming community that did not want to be regulated. That is true. But that was not a universal seg, uh, sentiment. And I actually think you can trace what NFAC does um, today back to an initial sentiment that, you know what, maybe if we get involved in the regulation, like that's better than not being regulated. And I think what you can see from the early report on NFAC's creation is a real concern. And I should say, this looked familiar to me because I wrote a paper in 2000 for the New Zealand Animal Welfare Act saying how the Animal Welfare Act got created and I said surprisingly it was the farmers who pushed for its creation and the reason for that was was that there was a dichotomy in the public consciousness and also in the way other international communities or markets if you wish Camille um, were viewing the way in which we treated our animals so what happened here just like it happened in New Zealand is that a lot of the farming community recognized that if we don't punish anybody, well, that's a problem, right? If we don't regulate anybody and everybody can do anything they want to animals, the disconnect between this idea that we're all good people and the reality of what you're seeing on TV is very, very problematic. And, and finally, I should say, Camille, I don't doubt that there were many farmers who 
you know, in their way, which is different from our way, really care about animals. And I don't, I don't, I haven't met too many farmers who look at those worst case scenarios in Chilliwack or otherwise and say, well, that's great, right? Whatever you want to do to your animal. Um, there were valid altruistic segments that said, you know, we need to do something about this. And I think it was all those things coming together that led to NFAC uh, being directly created. Yeah, for sure, Peter. I think that's right. And I, I think there's definitely advantages to an industry to being regulated in some way, especially if they have a lot of control over the content of that regulation, because then they can point to the laws or the standards or whatever and say to the public, look, we're strictly regulated. Look at all these standards we have to abide by. And I can't tell you how many times uh, we've filed a complaint about something or we've commented in the media about a farming practice. And the response from industry and the government is, well, look, we have these codes of practice. They're very strict. Everyone has to abide by them. They're very important and they're very good. So oftentimes industry loves this because they can use it as a sort of a, an excuse or an explanation or to describe what pertains to their industry. And to me, you've just, you know, given away our, our most, the most important message about NFAC from the beginning. Um, I'm going to go on. I'm sure we'll talk about even some good things about the NFAC codes. And then we'll talk about the criticism of the NFAC codes. But I'm going to tell you that to me, the most important thing that NFAC does is it allows industries to have a major say, if not control the conversation about animal use. If you don't have regulation, if you have nothing, Right. I used to say this in China when I was in China and they have even still to this moment, I believe, no animal welfare laws. Well, that's easy. Right. Every time uh, a farmer does something terrible to its animals, you could say, well, this is a problem. Like there is no law here. This is a real issue. It's the industry needs to be regulated. The problem is the fault of government and industry, whatever. But you are correct, Camille, that every time nowadays something goes wrong, you, you just get the standard response. It's the rogue farmer. That person is to blame. It was those three crazy guys in Chilliwack. It was this guy and that guy, and they're not complying, and that's a real problem. But look, we've got a robust system in place. And if you go to the NFAC Canada website, again, you may like the codes, you may not like the codes. We'll talk about what they are in more depth. You will be blown away by how much it is. And let me just say, I'm not, I'm not putting these words in the mouth. These are literally the words on the website and in the report for why NFAC was created, I apologize, I'm now trying to find the actual piece, uh, the actual quote, Camille, but I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't think I can find it directly in my paper. They literally say it's about getting out the message. That's what the NFAC codes do. It's about getting out the message that farmers do a good job. We need to have control over that message. Yeah, and Peter, uh, just... We should note that this is not unique to the farming community. We see the same thing with zoos. I, I mentioned earlier that Ontario doesn't license zoos or set very many standards for their operation uh, really at all. And the response often from the zoo industry is, well, look, we've got CASA, this national zoo uh, lobby group, essentially, which sets these standards for how zoos should operate. So we see this in all industries. There's When there's a, a void, essentially, of regulation, they step in with their own industry groups and use those as an excuse for not acting and say how great their standards are and how everyone really cares. And that's why they have these standards for themselves. And that's what, you know, now we're getting into some of the stuff. And that's what I find so frustrating about the whole exercise more than anything else. I mean, let's, let's leave aside the quality of the standards themselves. Let's assume they're awesome, okay? What bothers me most when I read through is like how oblique they are about what they are, 
Like, what are they actually doing? They, they love using words that, on one hand, make them sound important. And I've listed all these in my paper. At one point, they refer to them as standards. At another, it's guidelines. At another, they are fundamental obligations. At another, they are absolute requirements. And I'm like, but what does any of that mean? What is the actual basis for anyone to actually comply? Well, there may be bases, and I don't want to say there are no sanctions against non-compliers, because we'll talk about that um, in, in, in a moment, but, but to the extent there are any obligations to comply, let me stress, they are not legal obligations. <laughs> there is no law, because the NFAC codes, as NFAC takes great pains to concede, are not actually laws. Let's be clear. No, they are definitely not laws, and they are definitely not enforceable against anyone. Not law, not law. Now, how can that be? No. <laughs> that's, that's the part that's so crazy. Because again, if you go look at NFAC, you will be doing this dance. I, I, I urge everyone to go play this game. Go read a bunch of NFAC publications and then try to decide, well, are they laws or are they not laws? Because they sort of look like laws and they set standards that are apparently fundamental obligations, but not laws. And what's, what's, again, crazy is the more I go through NFAC stuff, the more I see this, like this attempt to show that it is this standardized side, uh, uh, these standards that have to be applied, and, and governments involved, and, and we've brought in public opinion and consensus, and we're all trying to, but what are you doing? Like, what is it you are actually putting in place? I have no problem, by the way, I should say, Camille, with NFAC codes being instructional guidelines for farmers. Great. Like, I think the more discussion we do about humane welfare standards, the better. Like, let's talk about it, right? I don't, that doesn't bother me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the, the, the real issue comes when they use it to avoid being actually regulated or, and we're going to talk about this soon, when you start to see some provinces adopting certain parts of this and referencing them in the law as maybe a standard or maybe a defense to, to a charge of animal cruelty. Well, let's, let's talk about that because that essentially is what provides the legal veneer because even then it's a veneer, as we'll talk about, but certainly they do tend to, there are provinces, I, I can't remember how many there are, I think there are five provinces that refer to the codes in one way or another. Does that sound about right? I think it's five. Yeah, that sounds about right. They they often reference the codes in provincial legislation and, and say things like, okay, and um, uh, if a farmer is abiding by a recognized code of practice, then that's a defense to a charge of, of causing an animal distress. I think that's one of the most common ways that we see them incorporated into the law. That's, that's the only way as far as I'm aware. So that is the way in which they're done. So let's talk about that because that, I mean, I don't have a hobby horse. What do I have? What, what, what happens when my head literally explodes, Camille, because something is so ridiculous? I don't know. I think you actually have a lot of hobby What's horses my other here, one? but why no, don't but you... <laughs> it, it's not a hobby horse. I need a different sound effect, Camille. Okay, well, Shannon will make one up for you. Something like my my head exploding. What the fuck? 
Peter, why don't you explain, put on your law professor hat for a minute and explain to people what the difference is between using something as a defense to a charge and actually making it a standard that has to be followed in the law. Sure. Camille, but I'm going to tell you it's even worse than that. That's, I'm going to preface with it's even worse than that. This is what drives me crazy. So this is where NFAC starts to say, well, they have legal recognition. We're doing a valuable public service because at least five provinces or so say that our codes are the standard by which you have to abide by. They're literally referenced in legislation. Well, the answer to that is no, they're actually not. And I'll tell you why. So first of all, there's a big difference between a standard uh, that you have to meet to comply with and a defense. If you comply with, you will not be charged. They're completely different things. And the reason for that is, is twofold. One, you can only charge the person if you find the animals actually in distress. And that is no small issue, as we're finding out time after time in court. You actually not only have to go to the farm and find a violation, and by the way, let's just preface by saying no one actually goes to the farm. Like, none of this There's has, no inspections. We're, we're, we're going to talk about enforcement or, as NFAC likes to call it, self-audit assessments to make sure that everybody is compliant. You know, Camille, everybody's complying with the codes, right? NFAC oh, has course. done a detailed study. No, they haven't actually, um, <laughs> to determine how many people are breaking the codes on a regular basis. No, nobody's doing that. They're just setting lots of codes. And what they do is they set these codes and these codes become defenses. Now, defenses only come into play if you can first find that there's a violation. But the failure to comply with a code is not a violation. You've actually got to find more than that the animal is in a cage that's too small or that the animal is not getting the required water on a daily basis or whatever the particular code requirement is. If you can't prove distress, and again, I stress to you as someone who's seen these cases over and over again, it's not always easy to do. You can't always prove the distress of the animal. It's not enough. So therefore, breach of the code may in some cases be reasonable indication that there is distress and therefore a charge should be laid, but having it as a defense means that you are not simply punishing the breach of the violation. And what drives me nuts about this, Camille, is that if you compare this to other areas in which you're regulated, nobody does things this way. Nobody. You just, no. it's not as if I'm driving and I can say, well, I've, you know, you have to catch me wrongdoing in some way. And if you catch me that, well, then we'll go to look to see whether I have complied with the laws if it's actually in place. Just nonsense. It is not the way we do things. And considering the vulnerability of the animals, number one, and the difficulty we have of getting on farms to investigate, number two, at the very least, and we are about to come to the segment where we're going to complain about the codes themselves and how they're made. At the very least, if you want to have these codes that set these standards that I think are too low, but we can quibble about that, um, if you want to have them, abide by them. Like, put your back behind them, right? You all say how much you love them, and every time a code's put in, the, the industry in question says this is the greatest thing that's ever happened, we agree with it, it's great, fantastic, abide by it, abide by it. And if you don't, you can be charged in some way. Like, whatever. Maybe sometimes they're trivial administrative violations, but whatever. The idea that you can't even stand behind your own codes as fulsome regulations, to me, is ludicrous. And I should just add yeah. one more point. I know I've been on for a long time, but I just want to say one last thing. They're not even the exclusive defense. That's what drives me the most crazy, is that even when they say that compliance with the code is a defense, well, the fact that you don't comply with the code, Camille, 
does not mean you don't have a defense. All the no, other regular no. defenses exist. In fact, as long as you can show you're in accord with a generally accepted practice, you still have a defense, even if you have not complied with the code as it has been created. Now, I confess it might be difficult to show that you are you know, in accord with a generally accepted practice if you're not complying with the code. But nonetheless, there is a due diligence defense. There is a generally accepted practice defense. All of these other defenses exist. And this all really operates to make the, the offense of causing distress to an animal pretty, pretty difficult to prove when it comes to an animal on a farm or in any one of these other situations to which the codes apply. And Peter, what's troubling me, and this is what I spoke about at, at Oxford, actually, and I think we chatted about this a bit on the last episode, but uh, what we're starting to see is not just existing provinces having the codes referenced in legislation in some way, but we're also seeing some groups lobbying to include the codes in legislation to a greater extent, and not as the standard that has to be followed, but as a defense. And I happen to know that in some provinces, for instance, the, they've, you know, they've asked for it to be the standard, and the government say, no, you know, we think it's better if it's defense, and I'm sure that's at the behest of the industry, which doesn't want it to be a standard. So it kind of goes back to your point about why, if the industry loves these codes so much, they're not prepared to stand by them and have them adopted into the law. And now, of course, that raises another question, too, which is, do we want these adopted into the law in any way? Because Oops, they're not being the problem, democratically right? <laughs> created. That's right. They're not being created by the public, by the government. They're being created essentially by the industry. I, I take great issue with that, Camille. I do. I have read the NFAC materials very carefully, and I know that consensus and collaboration is essential in getting impact codes passed. Oh, that sounds nice, doesn't it? It's fantastic. God love them. Well, this is a good segue into the actual creation of the code. So how do these things come about? Who makes them? Oh, well, it's a very balanced process, Camille, in which all sides... Oh, no, wait, that's... I was thinking about something else. Oh, sorry. It's not that at all, Camille. Um, well, it's industry-led. I don't know how else to put it. I've done a detailed study on the way in which it takes place, and it's industry-led. And if you don't believe that it's industry-led, I can give you facts and figures. But I can tell you that the NFAC uh, executive is dominated by industry. It's more than 60% industry. And when I say industry, their view of consensus and collaboration is that they need to get consensus with all the different people in the food chain. So essentially, the board is literally littered with processors, uh, dairy producers, cattle ranchers, they just get everybody. And all those people have a seat at the table. There are, as well, government representatives. So, by the way, I'm slamming fact, but government has allowed this process to go forward. Ultimately, this was the federal government's call. And they have said, go ahead, we love it. So this, as anything wrong with NFAC, can essentially be pointed right back to the government door. There are. Yeah, yeah, but they, they use NFAC as a scapegoat because they don't want to regulate anything themselves because it would be politically difficult to do that and get the farmers on board. So they're very happy to let this NFAC process proceed and claim no responsibility over it. Absolutely true. Um, I, I'm just trying to say I don't uh, let the government off the hook because I don't think we should. But if you look no, at the NFAC, at all. the NFAC um, um, executive... It's essentially, that's what it is. You've got, uh, I can get the actual numbers here in front of me. Camille, I apologize. I have to open up my paper, so watch out for the pages flipping. And I have the actual list of who's involved. Okay, and here's the list. So the NFAC executive, you ready? 
Ready. Here's who's on the NFAC executive. One, a chair who is always a member of one of the largest agricultural industries. Two members of national commodity associations. Example, chicken farmers, dairy farmers. So we're up to three, Camille. Good? Okay. Okay, keep going. One member from a national meat poultry processor association. That's four. One member from a national retail restaurant and food service association. Okay? So we're already up to five. Now, then they throw in a vet, right? Which we'll talk about. Then we throw in one member of a national animal welfare association. Oh my God, one whole member? Yeah. And then one member of a provincial farm animal care council. Do you know what a provincial farm animal care council is, Camille? Yeah, those are industry lobby groups that try to sell more animal products. There you go. So essentially what we have is, I mean... I'm assuming that the Restaurant and Food Service Association, well, I shouldn't say that. Let's assume that they do care what consumers say. So let's say they're, I don't know, quasi-protection oriented. Vets, animal welfare, um, are outvoted like by a major amount by everybody else on the committee who is directly affiliated with industry. Okay, now let's even look, let's look even better at a recent committee, okay? I've looked at quite a few of the committees, and let's just say that I don't know if you care whether numbers matter. That's an interesting question because the committee has to reach consensus. By the way, Camille, and boy, don't let me forget about the fact that NFAC is very clever. Once you sign on to NFAC, you are bound to NFAC. You cannot criticize NFAC. So let's say you're – do you love that? I, I love that. And what's more, Peter, you can't even sign on to NFAC in the first place unless you say that you don't disagree with animals being raised and killed for food. So an organization that disagrees with the farming system can't even participate. No, because how could we reach consensus, Camille? We're so unreasonable. Like we could never reach so consensus. So unreasonable. Yeah. So, okay, we're out. We're out, right? And so is, uh, but everybody else who's in is in. You must, as an objective, you, to be an NFAC member, you must support NFAC, the results and the process. Period. So the Canadian Federation of Humane Societies is literally prohibited from critiquing any of the codes. They essentially give them their blessing because they are in. And I don't know what it's like on those boards. I'm going to assume it's hunky-dory. Nobody ever disagrees about anything. Okay, great. Let's look at numbers. I don't know if you've ever been on committees, Camille, where there's like lots of people there. You ever been on a committee like that? I've been on really big committees, and I have to say it's not very fun. No, it's it's not a lot of fun. And I can tell you that like depending who's on the committee, it's really kind of, I don't know, troubling. I don't know what the word is. Especially like, it's kind if of- there's a... Di- very diverse range of viewpoints, which you can only assume that there are in this situation. Well, I mean, I, I also, in my paper, I look at I look at the diversity of committees and the way in which committees that are more diverse tend to reach better, more legitimate outcomes, right? But, I mean, let's talk about the 2017 Layer Hen Committee. You ready, Camille, for this one? Have you done any research on this committee? Oh, bring it on, Peter. All right, get your pen and paper, Camille. I'm going to give you some numbers. There's... there's I. Sorry, listeners, there is math involved here. Are you ready? I need you to do some counting. This is a committee of 18 people. You ready? Okay. Okay. Five representatives from the Egg Farmers of Canada. Five. Five? (laughs) Two two was not enough, Camille. We needed five. Five. You ready? That good? Okay. Okay. Five. Three members of the Canadian Poultry and Egg Processors Council. Okay. So that's eight. One from Maple Lodge Farms. 
as the transporter. Nine. That's nine. One from Pullet Growers of Canada, which grow the chicks. Okay, that's ten for industry. What? We're not done yet. Don't don't stop there. And one from a chicken breeder. Eleven. Got it. But surely, surely the rest are representing the other side of the spectrum, right, Camille? Oh, of course, right? Who is the veterinarian on the committee? We looked it up. Uh Uh-oh. Guess who he works with? Let me guess, egg farmers? Exclusively. It's not a vet. Everybody's like, well, a vet is a neutral scientist who works in a particular area, but that is not the way things work. Vets are people with very clear orientations to their philosophies. I can find you three different vets. They'll give you three different opinions on any topic involving animals. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. And again, back to our theme of look at the money. Yeah. So who is the vet? This is a vet who works exclusively with egg farmers and according to his blog is committed to curing the misinformation on egg farming and why it is in fact an excellent industry. Wow, so, sounds totally unbiased to me. 12. 12 of 18 on the committee are people whose livelihood is directly tied to the use of layer hens. Directly. Okay, but but there are there are six more. Got it? Okay, you ready bring for the it on. six? Okay, so the other two are government agent. Two are government agencies. Sorry, two or three. I don't have it right in front of me. I'll say three just to make the math work. Are government agencies? So they're essential enforcement agents. They're not government agencies, policy agents. They're enforcement agents. So they are there right. to discuss the nature of how this might be enforced or whatever. But I'm going to give them a pass. Let's assume they are government. So to that extent, they are at least somewhat representative of the public interest. Fair. Okay. Okay. The Retail Council of Canada. Okay, could I have, be more public interest yeah, minded or no consumer Yeah, no idea what their interest. position is. Correct. I have no idea. And then there's the scientific representative who wrote the committee, uh, the scientific report. And again, I've already talked about the scientific committee representative, a director from the uh, University of Guelph of the Campbell Center for the Study of Animal Welfare, who holds the Hague Farmers of Canada Chair in Poultry Welfare Research. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave that as it is. I'll assume that's a, there's no question, a pro-welfare person with some ties to industry. But, you know, and okay. then the, f- the final member is appointed by the Canadian Federation of Humane Societies. One. Wow, so one one animal welfare person out of 18. Well, again, I I don't think that's totally fair. I think there were some other people who at least they would have kinship on some issues, but I can't tell you what their orientation is because I don't fully know. But I'm at least, you know, I certainly know what the orientation of the first 12 is. That I can tell you. Um, So what you're saying, Peter, is that a bare minimum, two thirds of the members of that committee are there to represent the interests of the industries, which, of course, are profit driven. And that has been my findings studying every committee that's ever been together by NFAC. Well, I'd like to say I'm surprised, but I'm not. <laughs> no, neither am I surprised. But I mean, when you talk about the, when you go look about this, when you go look at all the literature from NFAC, what they talk about is consensus, collaboration, and we're driven to make compromises and this, that, and the other thing. But I mean, this is all just a lot of discussion. It's all a lot of talk because... Again, what bothers me the most is when you get to, well, does the committee membership affect the actual results? Well, when you look at what NFAC's doing, NFAC would love you to think, because they say things along these lines, that essentially we're looking at integrating the best science and what the animals need, which is just absolute 
trash. That is just not true. I have no doubt they look at the science. That's, there's no doubt in my mind they do that. But unfortunately, what we have learned from this show, if nothing else, is that decisions on animal welfare are not about science. Science is only a piece of the puzzle because ultimately they're about value decisions, about whether it's a good idea to do certain things. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if it was truly about science, Peter, I think what we'd see is a, a committee made up exclusively of people with animals interests and with a scientific background in mind. We wouldn't see people who are representative of industry, which, of course, are profit driven. Well, science, science is important. I'm not saying that the science has nothing to do with animal welfare decisions. Of course it does. The science shows us what various measures, you know, cause various degrees of pain or whatever, right? I mean, the science is what tells us that an enriched cage provides more enrichment for hens than a battery cage. And I'll accept the science on that. But what it doesn't tell us and what it refuses to answer the question is whether that's good enough because that's a value question. It's essentially a political question. And you are deciding this political question in the face of 12 people who represent the industry that requires that farming to be done as economically as possible. That's right. And I think it ultimately comes down, obviously, to a financial equation. If the industry can make changes that aren't going to substantially affect its bottom line or might affect its bottom line in a way that uh, costs some money, but they gain this benefit of being able to communicate to the public and say, look, we've got these stronger welfare standards that might make up some sales difference and, and give them more sales and they wouldn't necessarily lose money. So I think it ultimately just comes down to a financial equation for the industry, what they're willing to support or not. Well, again, and I haven't been on one of those committees. I'm not sure whether they do give back. I haven't seen anything in the codes yet that strike me. And, and, and let me just say, I, I should probably say this because I've been going on for a while. I do. Can I go through quickly my four benefits of the codes? Because I actually do think there are benefits. Is that worth doing? Sure. Yeah, let's do that. And let's also talk about codes in other countries and how they differ from Canada. Okay, so I'll quickly go through, right? Um, what is good about the codes? Well, number one, and this one's a little bit complex because it feeds into another theory I have about public discourse, is I say codes are better than no codes. And I believe that to be true because I believe that without codes we are fighting about the term unnecessary, and that is not a good thing. It doesn't give us enough guideposts, and it doesn't give us enough to discuss, to be perfectly frank. And in the legal sphere, the more opportunities you can have to discuss the merits of particular uh, uh, things, the better you are in terms of spreading the social discourse about animals. So I would say that if nothing else, I don't know if you agree with this one, Camille, or not, NFAC provides opportunities for all of us to critique, to comment, to get out into the mainstream. And in my paper, I cite the very famous discussion over sow stalls that took place when the pig code was being discussed in 2013. Sure. And, you know, we saw an op-ed, I think, from Ryan Gosling in uh, the Globe and Mail, which was a pretty big deal, it, talking about sow stalls. And Peter, I'm going to I'm going to partially agree with you and partially disagree. I okay. completely agree that it provides a forum for discussion and part of what we can accomplish as animal lawyers is helping shift societal attitudes and then enshrine those attitudes into law. And that's a good thing. So discussion is good because it does result in attitudinal shift. Where I'm going to disagree with you is I'm not sure I would say that having codes is better than having no codes. Uh maybe, but I'm not totally convinced. Because I think if you had no codes, there would be impetus for the federal government to act and to regulate farming, and they wouldn't have a convenient way of avoiding it. So I'm a little less certain on that one, but I agree with you mostly. 
Oh, so I, I take your point, and I, I guess I, maybe I, I misstated. I wasn't saying it's better than not having. I, I, I was just talking about, it. is it a benefit? And I think, yes, it is. Uh, I think it's a benefit that has to be weighed into the overall calculus. But I, I take your point that other advantages of doing it another way could be much more beneficial. Um, I then talk about another benefit of being um, um, industry buying. So if you set the codes low enough, you get industry buy-in. And there is that idea that, well, this is, you know, it's kind of useful because the consensus-driven model essentially provides a clear acceptance of whatever is actually created. So what I mean by that is there is some advantage to the idea that when we create a standard, this standard is actually accepted. So by letting industry create the standards, you can't, you don't have the problem of industry not buying in. Yeah, that's a fair point. Not, not a huge benefit, but it is a benefit. Um, third, I would say that a, a strength, and, and I know I've had some debates with Anna about this, but I would say that a strength of the codes from when, when I've looked at them is to date, I think they are clearly articulated. NFAC says that the codes have to be clearly articulated to ensure easy understanding. And from my reading of the codes, I think by and large they've met that. I think they have tried to put as clear as possible what you actually have to do with the animal. Now let me stress, they don't put as many of those in as required standards as I would like, and that makes things a little wishy-washy. But I do think um, it is easier to determine, and I use this as an example in the paper, whether a farrowing crate allows the sow enough room to move forward and backward, then it is to decide whether a crate provides adequate space, which is the language in the provincial laws. Yeah, you're right. They are definitely more specific than provincial laws. I'm not sure I entirely agree. I'm, I'm just thinking of some examples from the mink code. And I've reviewed that one probably more extensively than a lot of the others because I've filed a lot of complaints about fur farms. But, you know, the, the mink code, for instance, air quality, it uses that wishy-washy language that's similar to the provincial laws. So it says, sheds must provide adequate ventilation to minimize odors and ammonia and protect mink health. So what does adequate mean? What does minimizing odors mean? I, I think there's still some of that wishy-washy language. Yeah, you're probably right. I, I looked, the ones I focused most on are the pig code and the liar hen code, and I found that those had much more clarity, uh, certainly than some of the other standards I've looked at. But I, I, I Anna's, Anna suggested to me that she doesn't find them clear either. And uh, I guess what I'd say is that the, the They've certainly said they want them clear, and I've seen instances in which they are clear. So to the extent that they have gone for that, I, I do think that that's important. And, and the reason I like that is because the more clarity we have, first of all, it's good for the users, but it's also good for us as advocates, right? If we can find very clear wording and we can show that, that wording doesn't accord with what an animal needs, well, that becomes your next reform target. Yeah, definitely. And the only other benefit I could find, of course, is that they do eliminate some of the worst practices. Um, I think they were going there anyway, but there's no question that they have eliminated at least a few of the worst of the worst. Um, we know that uh, uh, the, the pig code is a good example, although, of course, the transition period to full compliance is massive and that we could talk at length about some of the loopholes that exist and the way in which they're done. Nonetheless, uh, any new housing facility built in this country must use group housing as opposed to crates. And if you think that's a benefit, well, then there's at least some of the worst being removed. And the same can be said in the layer hen situation. 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, the, the new layer hand code does eliminate battery cages for hens and, and uh, requires more space or free-range housing. And of course, Peter, the 20-year phase-in period is a bit of an issue, but we'll just leave it at that for now. 20 years, Camille. I mean, at least I, I, I expect on my deathbed to be, well, maybe that's a little premature. But I, I, hope, I hope you live more than 20 years. <laughs> I expect from my old age home to be rolled out and, and I can take a look at these no enriched farms and say, wow, we've come a long way. Um, okay, yeah. so that's what I wanted to get into. Let's talk, Camille, you wanted to mention uh, as we wrap this up, codes in other countries because they're not all done this way, are they? No, in fact, I was surprised to learn that most of them are done quite differently. So I, I was researching this for my talk this summer at Oxford again about privatization of animal lawmaking and enforcement and uh, came across New Zealand, um, the UK, other jurisdictions where there are still codes, but the codes are referenced in national animal welfare legislation. And the development of the codes is actually led by the government. So instead of this private organization NFAT creating them, government bodies are in charge of it. And what I like about that, Peter, is it doesn't let government off the hook in the same way. The codes might still have many of the same problems of enforceability and questionable um, legal value as a standard, but at least it makes the government um, answer to the creation of the codes and answer to their content. So I know in New Zealand, especially when you were down there, um, I think the government has a mandate it must revise the codes every, is it 10 years or five years by legislation? Yeah, absolutely. It's a different, it's just a completely different system. I mean, Australia and New Zealand both do it that way. They have, I mean, NFAC has mandatory reviews too, you know, at least self-imposed, <laughs> mandatory, quasi-mandatory reviews. But I mean, but there's no, there's no doubt that uh, the, the approach in New Zealand, I mean, what's interesting is I, of course, critique the New Zealand system because I didn't think it totally lived up to the standards of what a democratic review process should be. But I mean, you look at the, the New Zealand standard to compare it to the, to the Canadian one, it's just like, it's night and day. Like, it's, it's really night and day. It's, it's, they're just not the same thing at all. Yeah, no, it really drives home how this country fails animals uh, compared to other jurisdictions in like pretty much every way it can. And the codes are just one example of that. <laughs> and the funny thing is that if you look at the NFAC site, it's another, it's trumpeted as a virtue. It's the only organization in the world that does this. Do you notice that? It's, it's hilarious. They, they're like, it's the only time. And, and NFAC is a unique process by which we do. All, it's just you just keep reading all this and they talk at it as just the most amazing thing either. Like no one else does this. And I'm like, I don't know. To me, that's kind of a red flag, right? <laughs> like nobody else yeah. is doing this. But to NFAC, it's like amazing. Oh, how adorable that they're trying to build that as a good thing instead of totally being out to lunch. Camille, when you need some entertainment in your day, spend some time on the NFAC website. It's really, I mean, we didn't even get to discuss because we really should wrap this up. But I mean, their whole thing about public input. Oh, and how, what a joke. And how they, they commissioned a study to review their public input. Like to see how. What did they how, find, how, Peter? What the did study, they find? Surprisingly, Camille, the study says that the NFAC process is literally, it was either created by God or just is the greatest thing that's ever happened. It was, it's pretty amazing. It's just all good all the time. By the way, I, I have no idea. I have no idea what the public input process is designed to do. That's the funniest part about it. It's like they talk about how vibrant it is and how much they use the commentary. And I'm like, well, to what end? Like, why have public input at all? Are you doing it 
to get public commentary on things you're not experts on? Or are you actually trying to use it to get public opinion? Because if it's the latter, you're not doing that effectively. Or is it just to like, I don't know, my cynical view says you're just doing it to make it look like these are lawmaking processes that have public input. Because you, the way in which you get public input does not accord with any aspect of real public accountability in any process I've ever seen and how you can say that it's awesome. Anyway, look at that. I got into public input. I know, but I, I agree with you, Peter. I think it's complete window dressing. I think they're trying to appear legitimate when I don't believe that they are. And if you look at the way governments gather public input, I mean, if we were talking about a new law or regulation, there would be an opportunity to testify before a standing committee on agriculture, for instance. Uh, we did that. Anna Pippis did that for animal justice when the government was talking about the transport laws. And that's a televised process. Anyone can tune in and listen or watch those comments. It is a public participation process. Whereas, in fact, basically you send an email from their website and then it may go into someone's inbox, it may get read, like we don't really know what the actual effect of it is. And I also agree with your point that it's kind of useless as a metric of public opinion. If they don't want to know what the public thinks about something, you do a poll. Um, if you're collecting information in this way, what you're essentially asking for people for, if you're asking for feedback, is their values. You're asking what they value and what you want them to do. But if the industry is still making the decisions and the public might say we really value animal welfare and more space, ultimately it's still the industry's uh, decision or a consensus decision that's heavily no, weighted no, toward no, industry. Camille, Camille you're, you're wrong. I've read, I've read NFAC's reports and they say that they take those comments very seriously. Very. Oh well, I'm 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 relieved Camille. to hear that's the case. Come on, they use the word very. I, 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 come on, like it's it's very serious. They look at them over. They they had the people talking about them. They track them. They put them together. And by the way, I'm I'm being facetious. I have no doubt that they do look at them. I I have no doubt that they review them. Like okay, I have no doubt. But what does that actually mean? Like to what end? Like, there's no obligation to actually, I don't know, report on them. Can you imagine? Yeah, no, like that's no the part idea. that's so hilarious. No, but it's vibrant. It's a vibrant process, yet not one that they have to report catalog, uh, you know, report back the gist of it. Imagine they had a code where it's like 90% of the comments said, this code's ridiculous, doesn't cover this, that, or the other thing. Well, we've considered that, Camille. We've considered it very closely. Mm -hmm. Well, just for them. Anyway, NFAC. We will talk more about NFAC, I am sure on this podcast, but it's been fun. I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. I hope you guys all enjoyed that discussion. I know it's a bit of a kind of a heavy legal issue and sort of a non-legal issue too. And there's lots of details there, but uh, check out NFAC's website if you want to learn more and uh, educate yourself about this because it really is one of the biggest issues affecting animals in this country. If you think about the number of animals used in farming, it's 800 million animals slaughtered last year in Canada. Um, fur farms have codes that apply as well, and there's several million that are killed there. And uh, it's most of the animals used. It's almost all of the animals used in this country have some sort of applicable NFAC code. So it really is a serious issue, and we should all be aware of what they're up to. Heroes and Zeros. All right, we are back. It is time after that glorious discussion of NFAC for... Everybody's favorite part of the show, heroes and zeros. Oh my God, Camille, I totally forgot about something. Can we retroactively what? go back to the news segment? <laughs> I'm sure we can. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't mean to edit it and put it in. We'll do it right here. I just forgot to tell you the biggest news of all, which you knew, but I have to tell our listeners, 
my family went up on the wall at Padmanati, and that was a very big historic day for us in Edmonton. Oh my God, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> we have to talk. It's a very big deal. It's like the greatest honor of my career. We are now, if you go to the restaurant Padmanati in Edmonton, um, which is a wonderful vegan restaurant there, they have all their like most loyal customers are like in picture and they had these beautiful pictures done and my family and I are up on the wall in Padmanati as of last week. Very excited. Well, congratulations. If you're listening and you want to check it out, visit Padmanati, see the photo of Peter and his family, and eat some delicious food. And there's a paw and order sign up there, too. I should add. All right. We got to get back to heroes and zeros. Camille, lead us off with our wonderful hero. Okay, well, I don't think this is the first time they've been named a hero, and it might not be the last because there's some good stuff going on over there. But the UK is moving to ban electric shock collars for dogs, and they're also opening up consultations on banning third-party cat and dog sales in an effort basically to to cut down on puppy and kitten mills, or puppy and kitten farms as they call them in the UK. Which is just really good news. Uh, In Canada, we are so far behind on doing anything we can to tackling puppy mills and kitten mills. There's essentially no licenses for dog breeders in most of the country. This stuff happens all the time. There's no inspections. Um, Abuse runs rampant. And the UK is recognizing that uh, third-party sales of cat and dog, so not directly from the breeder, are definitely a cause of this. So think about uh, pet stores, which are buying animals from puppy mills and then reselling them to people who have no way of assessing those actual conditions for themselves. So I I hope they go farther than they've announced. I think it would be also really important for them to ban online sales of animals because what you often see, Peter, and I know people who this has happened to firsthand, is they see an ad for an animal up for adoption on Craigslist or Kijiji and they think, oh, that's great. I should adopt instead of shopping. And they end up going to a horrible facility with tons of animals, a breeding facility, obviously breeding. And they think, oh God, I just want to rescue this animal from this nightmare. So I will adopt or buy him or her. So I think that shutting down online sales would be really important too. But uh, in the meantime, the UK is still so far ahead of where we are. So here, hats here. off. Here, here. Long way to go in Canada. Absolutely. And Peter, we've got a pretty terrible zero this week. We're going local. I believe we have discussed this story, Camille, although my memory could be shaky. We did discuss this way back when when it happened. I'm almost certain of it. Does that sound right? I'm sure we did. Yeah, I think back in February or March. Yeah, the Edmonton Humane Society has laid two charges against our zero of the month. I apologize. Well, I don't really apologize if I mispronounce your name, but um, Minshaw Menon after 500 animals were seized last February from My Pet, a store in the West Edmonton Mall where the animals were effectively abandoned um, because of a lease issue, as far as I understand it, uh, Camille. So the guy literally packed up, left all his animals, and the SPCA had to come in and seize them all. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. And as you noted, it was a huge seizure. 500 animals. That's just, I mean, it must have been so taxing for the Humane Society to, to rescue all those animals. And I know they held a really big mass adoption event where they found all of them home. So that's really great. But it wasn't just cats and dogs, Peter. There were uh, guinea pigs, gerbils, fishes, birds. It was like pretty much any animal you can imagine. Snakes, spiders. Across across the board. Well, the good news is that uh, the West Edmonton Mall recognized, of course, that having a pet store with uh, owners like that in it who were, you know, adopting on animals was not a good idea. And they promptly resolved to never allow another pet store. Well, for three months, anyway, they decided not to allow <laughs> another pet store. 
There is another pet store in the West Edmonton Mall. I can't say for sure. I've heard rumors, which may be completely false, that the owner of the previous pet store is in some way involved with the new pet store. How crazy is that? If true. I know. It's pretty shocking. You'd think the Edmonton Mall would be like, oh, hey, this is actually really bad for animals to be abandoned. And maybe these are really bad conditions for them. And maybe we shouldn't be involved in this sales type operation. But they seem perfectly happy to collect new rent money from a new pet store. Yeah, I hope they were investigated. Uh, I'm not saying charges should have been laid against them all, but uh, I, I hope they were investigated. I, I, I find it upsetting. The one thing I know for sure is that <coughs> excuse me, the Humane Society was notified by customers. It wasn't notified by the mall, who is like the leaseholder. And uh, essentially, you know, obviously knew there was some issue with the lease, perhaps did not know or, or, or find out that they were going to leave all the animals. But I, I, do, think, I do think it's troubling. It <coughs> in a way leads back to the previous story with the UK about actually regulating sales of animals in stores. I mean, I'm just troubled by the whole story. Um, we could talk about the charging decision as well. Yeah, that's right. So there were two charges laid. One charge was for abandonment. Uh, so these are both provincial charges, I should say. With a and whopping charge... potential penalty, right? <laughs> Not so much. What is it? $20,000, Peter? Maximum, maximum fine of $20,000, which will not be imposed. I mean, the maximum loan is never imposed, despite the fact that it was 500 animals. It's just, it's really, it's deeply troubling conduct. Well, so it's interesting that only two charges were laid. So one's for abandonment, and that requires leaving an animal for more than 24 hours or after a tenancy is, expires. And then the second charge, which was a charge of distress. So what do you think about the fact that there were 500 animals in this situation, but only two charges were laid? Well, I mean, it, it, I, I always think it's better to lay more charges, especially because distress is something that, that needs to be proven. So like it's it's troubling. Like I I don't know what how they've particularized the charge. Um, I would have liked to seen it be particularized a little bit more clearly. So you had multiple charges relating to the different types of animals. And frankly, I think multiple charges would be useful to send a message of how severe the conduct was. Now at the end of the day, you could argue that the multiple charges doesn't matter that much. But but then again. It could, because having multiple charges allows you to accumulate fines and recognize that each of the animals are individual victims, whereas in this case, you're essentially clogging in the 500 animals within the abandonment and distress provisions. And like, we don't know if they were all in distress. We don't know if the fish were suffering, if the spiders were suffering, or if the spiders or fish are actually covered by the legislation. I mean, these are all questions we just don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and also, if you if, in a case where more charges are laid, that gives the Crown prosecutor some leverage potentially in plea negotiations. So they might be able to say, look, I'll withdraw most of these charges or um, and you can plead guilty to one or two. Or they could say, look, we are going to go to trial and we're going to try to prove um, a couple of representative charges. And if we can do that, then you're guilty on the rest of them, too. So that gives them more options, which is kind of puzzling in this case. I, I should just add that my co-zero of the month is the Alberta government, and I raise this because I'm just suggesting again that the Alberta Animal Protection Act is just absolutely ridiculous with this maximum $20,000 fine. Like, if any case signals how bad it is, it's this one. This is a case with multiple victims. It's just multiple. I mean, multiple doesn't reach to 500. Um, it's just, it's an abomination in a situation where a person was in a position of trust towards those animals and just walked away. Like, it's absolutely shocking conduct, if all the allegations are proved, of course. For all I know, the guy went into a coma the next day and couldn't get up. But let's assume for the moment 
argument that it was it's it, it can all be proved you're talking about very severe conduct and 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 there's just no leeway in the legislation to punish it appropriately no, there's not. And tragically, this type of treatment is not atypical in the pet industry, especially the exotic pet trade, but really all the pet trades um, are just a house of horrors. And honestly, for every animal that you see in the store, in many cases, especially with animals who are exotic and imported from other countries, many, many more animals died for that one animal to get to the store shelf. So we're talking about 500 animals here, but really this represents a, a much bigger problem. And Peter, what I would like to see as well is the uh, city of Edmonton take some action to crack down on pet stores and pet sales like other cities have already done. Yeah, here, here. There's a lot of different ways to go about this. Literally, there are there. You, you can look at all the different the different ways. And, and what troubles me is it just disappears so quickly. It's such a quick story. Yep, that animal's great. We've dealt with it. Move on. And it's really hard yep. to generate the kind of traction that we need on these kind of stories. Yeah, but it just strikes me that in 2018, it is literally insane for us to be buying and selling animals in pet stores. There are many rescue centers out there. And anyone listening, I hope you're already attuned to the idea of adoption. But if you're not, please adopt. Don't shop. Sounds like a good way to end it, Camille. Camille, it's been fun. It's been good getting back together with you. Um, I, I hope your croissant pipeline is in place to keep you, you know, are you, you managing the withdrawal symptoms? Have you gotten over the shakes yet? Yeah, it's, it's, I'm taking it day by day, Peter. Day by day. Well, that's good. I look forward. I, I'm, I'm pretty confident, Camille. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Honor. Until then, signing off. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.